0: All right, well if there are not other questions or if there are not any questions um, we were talking previously about the procurement process and uh, specifically we were at a junctioning point here having just wrapped up our discussion of the material master and we've talked about the material master quite a bit this semester uh, in a couple of different contexts so there are a goodly number of questions about that in our exam um, to be looking towards. Uh, Today we will hopefully be able to talk about vendor master purchasing information record and conditions and then perhaps move into a little bit more of the details on the procurement process. So um, to dive right in on this issue of the vendor master, uh, the role of this in the system is, is fairly straightforward. As a company, we need to purchase products. The term we use for the companies that we buy from are vendors, and so we will be buying from a variety of different vendor companies, and so we need to keep track of those transactions that we have with them. We need to keep track of things like how much we owe them, uh, purchasing history, and other things of that sort in our overall relationship. Now it, it should not be a surprise for us to make the observation that the vendor account is created at the client level. Why, why should that not be a surprise for us? What, what principle is this illustrating? All master data is created at the client level, so you will undoubtedly see some terms and some concepts on your midterm that relate to that, but a good principle to always keep in the back of your head is if something is master data, it is created at the client level. And and I would encourage you as well to make sure that as you are thinking about organizational data and master data, uh, make sure that you can distinguish among those, but a vendor master uh, or Vendor in general would be a good example of master data. And so that is something that is created at the client level and the information as far as the general data goes is managed at the client level. Now when we say the general data, we're talking about the name of the vendor, their address, how we communicate with the vendor, search terms that we might define to help us make it easier to find the vendor in the system. All of those things are things that are uh, maintained as a part of the vendor master record and are uniform across the entire client. The vendor master also has two other segments associated with that. And that is the accounting data for each vendor is managed separately for each company code. Now, why, why would that be? What's that? Yeah, whenever we see company code, always in your mind think financial accounting. So that'll get you partway into the answer for this question. So we know it has something to do with financial accounting, but why specifically um, is, is this something that's necessary for us? Why do we have to manage the accounting data separately for each company code? okay all right I buy that that's true why else is this something necessary X want to pay for Y's exactly we have a client that has multiple company codes in it and every company code needs to pay for their own purchases and uh, as Renee very aptly stated company X doesn't want to pay company Y's bill and so even though we have one vendor defined in the client Every company needs to maintain their own accounting information in terms of how much they have bought and and how much is still outstanding on bills and things of that sort. So for every vendor master, the subledger account and the reconciliation account and the payment terms, those things will be specific to the, the individual company code. Keep in mind, you will once again, I'm trying to, as a part of our discussion today, review things that uh, will be key elements on our midterm exam as we go along here. This idea of the sub-ledger account and the reconciliation account are very, very important because what we will do, and you did this in your, your lab work, is uh, you might create a vendor vendor uh, 1100, zero, zero, um, I don't remember how many zeros here, uh, pound pound. I think this is a, a vendor that you created. I was looking at this with Benjamin right before class. So when you create this vendor, you are creating it client-wide but one of the things that you will put in when you create this is the subledger account, the reconciliation account, and and the payment terms. Well, the first two of those are the more interesting ones. This right here, this number, 1100 pound pound, that's the subledger account number. But in the definition of that, this will map to a reconciliation account and so for a given vendor it might say that the reconciliation account is three hundred thousand, and we'll perhaps look at this in the in the client here in a moment now what's the significance of this number representing the subledger account and the reconciliation account who can who can explain to us what's going on here and, and what this does for us? What happens, what, what's the role of the subledger account, what's the role of the reconciliation account? Okay. Okay, everything you said sounds accurate to me. Um, there's a couple of subtle things to it that we could talk about. When we look at, to use your example, of, I make a purchase on credit, okay, I make a purchase on credit and so there's some debiting and some crediting of accounts going on. Am I doing those transactions in regards to which of these things? The sub-ledger. I am debiting or crediting, depending upon the nature of the transaction, whether I'm paying a bill or incurring an original debt. I am doing that with the subledger account. So what's the relationship with the reconciliation account? What's going on here? It's automatically updated, absolutely. And, And how does that happen? Account determination which sounds like a really good term for you to be very, very familiar with for your exam. Account determination is the key to a lot of this information handling. And so we define a subledger account, we map as well a vendor to a reconciliation account, and then account determination allows us to connect these things up. Now it's it's kind of subtle, but we saw something like this in regards to materials last time. You remember that because we were looking at the material master? How was it different for materials than it is for vendors? How did account determination work for materials? Right idea, but wrong terminology. This is stuff you guys got to know for the exam, or you're going to get hammered on the exam, okay? How how did information go? What's that? No, no, let's back up here a second and and look at this, because this is really, really critical. Uh, Let's find it here, Um, and I got to whoops, I think I backed up too far here. Let me find this. Okay, so here's Material Master. All right, and... Okay, so how does account determination work for materials? Every material is put into a valuation class, and the valuation class is mapped to a reconciliation account in the general ledger. So what we have is with materials, materials are put into a valuation class. The valuation class determines how account determination is done. In the case of a vendor, we don't have anything like that. With a vendor, we explicitly define for each vendor a reconciliation account. So there's no such thing as a vendor group that will let us map an entire set of vendors to a reconciliation account. For every vendor individually, we have to define that as a part of the vendor master (coughs) record. And so accounting data for each vendor is managed separately for, for each company code. Purchasing data for each vendor is managed separately for each purchasing organization and this gets into issues related to partner functions and, and terms, two things that we will talk a little bit more about. So if you think about it this way, all of this is about helping us keep information straight for the sake of reporting that we might need to do or desire to do. The reason why we have to distinguish every company code is because of financial accounting. And we already observed that in previous discussions. The reason why we segregate things based on purchasing organizations is first of all, so that we can keep them straight, which purchasing organization is involved in which transactions, and then it also influences things like like the terms of sale now all of this if you understand the way these transactions work and how the information is managed flows through and what we see when we're actually interacting with things in in the SAP GUI and so uh, let's look at that for a second because this is a a really good illustration of the concepts here Uh, logistics material management uh, purchasing master data vendor, central, and I'm going to display a vendor. Now notice what we just talked about on the slide and what we are seeing here on this screen. On the slide it says we have this general data level, we have accounting data based on company code, and we have purchasing data based on purchasing organization. Notice these boxes right here. General data, company code data, purchasing organization data. And notice the boxes here at the top that give me fields to put things into. I have vendor, I have company code, and I have uh, purchasing organization. So I'm going to do this. Let's look at a given vendor. And um, I'm going to search for this vendor by my company code. And so I will come down here and pick my... Uh, Company code, and I want to pick a vendor I've bought some stuff for and from, and so Olympic protective gear falls into that category. Now, notice what it did. Because when I searched, I put in my company code, it it put that field there. It put that data. I'm going to wipe that out. Okay. Now, if I only put in the vendor number like I just did, I can ask it to tell me any of this stuff. So I say, I want to see the address. We might not have data for all of these elements, but I can ask it for that. And notice it didn't complain. It said, "Okay, sure. Uh, Here's the name of the company. Here's their address and all of the other basic information, which is client-wide for this particular company. But notice if I come down here and say, "Okay, I want to look at the accounting info, and I press Enter to try and have it display this to me, enter a company code because it can't show me any of this accounting information without knowing a particular company code. And this kind of relates to a problem that a a couple of people have had. If I were to say, okay, show me this for company code us 00 well, what's going to happen here? I hit enter and it says, okay, here you go. Here's the information, but if I try and actually dig into accounting information, I, I basically have a, a totally blank template here. Well, w- w- what's going on? This vendor exists, but there's no data for it in the context of this particular company code. But if I change this, and uh, I didn't mean to do that, I just wanted to... Retype this. So if I change this to uh, my company code here, and so it's uh, US02. And so now, as I scroll across here and look at the information, I am going to see, you know, here's a reconciliation account associated with that vendor, and uh, that information is present for my interaction with this particular vendor. And so I could say, you know, show me all the payment transactions, which I didn't have toggled before. And so as we scroll across here, um, we should get, you know, here's my payment information showing my payment terms and and other things associated with that vendor. Now, once again, suppose I want to say, okay, show me actual purchasing data. Well, now, once I toggle that on, now it needs to know a purchasing organization so depending upon what portion of this record I want to look at I can either get away with if I just give you the name of the vendor meaning the number of the vendor I can look at all of this client information if I want to start digging into accounting things I've got to specify the company code and if I want more detail about the specific purchasing that's going on I'm going to have to specify the purchasing organization so we actually have this diagram right here that illustrates this in a, in a very uh, interesting way, I always call this a butterfly although I guess it's kind of more like an upside down butterfly picture but to me it kind of looks like wings of a butterfly and so the idea is this. I have, if I say I want to see the accounting information, well if I specify the accounting In order to get accounting information I have to specify the company code and at that point I can see everything that's in this little yellow oval here because I can always see the client level information. I could alternately want to look at the purchasing information and so to look at the purchasing information I have to specify the purchasing organization and I can see everything that's in here in in this blue oval. So what that does is that creates a scenario where in my organization I might have, we're all using client 100, but here's company code 101, company code 101, company code 102, company code 103. So these two are going to have the same accounting wing, if you will, but these are going to be distinct because they're different company codes. And then I have four different purchasing organizations involved. So every one of these butterflies, if you will, is distinctive, and so I might have one vendor defined But if I have multiple company codes that have interacted with that vendor, multiple purchasing organizations that have interacted with the vendor, depending upon what information I put in, I'm going to see different data. So this is distinct from the concept of a view, but it's similar to a view in that depending upon what organizational data I specify, the information I see, is actually something that's very very different. Questions about this? All right so let's just talk a little bit more about this vendor master data and we see the same segregation here of client level, company code level, and purchasing organization level. The client level I see the vendor number, the name, the address, the communication. I think we had that on a previous slide. For the accounting data, I'm seeing the reconciliation account. I'm seeing banking information. I'm seeing payment terms. I'm seeing things related to communication with that vendor. Do I send them things through? Uh, electronic data interchange, do I fax them purchasing records, do I email them to them, you know, everything I need to do or to know related to communicating with that vendor. Dunning really doesn't come into play, so we can get rid of that guy right there. And then as far as purchasing data goes, we have these partner functions and and ENCO terms. So really, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, Name, address, communication, and, and all of that. This is stuff we've talked about before. We've talked about reconciliation accounts, um, payment terms are a pretty straightforward concept, but, but this stuff over here that's in the purchasing organization segment of the vendor master, uh, that's new for us in the context of the purchasing process, so, so let's talk about that for, for just a moment here. When we talk about partner functions, that is a term that is used generically to refer to information that is important to us in the context of doing transactions with another company. And it goes back to what I talked about a moment ago, maybe email addresses that I use, maybe fax numbers that I fax things to, maybe information about the electronic data interchange process. Anything that I need to know to enable me to be able to communicate effectively with another business entity is referred to as as partner functions so this is just really nuts and bolts stuff and to save you time you haven't really had to do much of this in your data entry this semester Um, you've copied vendor accounts so you didn't have to type in you know this vendor is at 112 Elm Street and so on you didn't really have to put in my contact at this vendor as Bob Smith, and Bob's phone number is this, and he's the, you know, head of East Coast Sales. And so the idea here is that as much information as we want to record about this vendor, we can put that into the system, and it all goes into the section of the Vendor Master Record for partner functions. And we actually use that term partner functions for both customers and vendors. Because it's the same kind of thing, for my customers, I need to know their addresses, I need to know the people that work there, I need to know their phone numbers and so on. And so we see this same concept show up in not only the vendor master record, but in our customer master records as well. And so we may just briefly mention that when we talk about the selling process, but it's not something that we really need to talk about in, in any kind of detail. What is more interesting, though, is Incoterms. Now some of you may be more familiar with this than others of you, depending upon your uh, previous classes that you have taken. But Incoterms are very, very critical for us when buying and selling product. Because one of the key issues is that in any given purchase or sale, there will be a whole sequence of different activities that happen. But at some point in the overall sequence of activities, something very critical will take place, and that is ownership will change. If I am, in this case, because we're talking about procurement, if I am buying a product, we need to know at what point in time I actually take ownership of the product. Now because this is such a critical thing for us to have established, there are established business terms to describe scenarios under which title will pass at a given point. But before we dig into that detail, why do we really care about this? Why is it important for us to know at what point ownership passes for a given material. Yes, sir? Partially insurance. Insurance could be a big part of that. And, and so let's, uh, what else? I realize that kind of encompasses a lot of things. So why is it important? Insurance is partly the reason, um, but why, why is insurance important? Why do we care when ownership passes? Responsibility is a good word, okay? Let me give you a hypothetical example. You order a new laptop from Amazon and two days later you open your front door and they're sitting on your front porch or stoop or whatever you have at your residence. There's a box there that looks like it was trampled by elephants and you immediately have a sinking feeling in your stomach and you pick it up and you can right away tell this is not going to be good. But you go inside and you open up the box and you see that your laptop is clearly not ever going to function because it is very, very broken. And so you call, or most likely you'll contact them in another way, but you contact Amazon and Amazon says to you, tough your laptop and you say no 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 hold on a second Um, you know i ordered a functioning laptop from you and what i got was a broken laptop well a key element in this whole discussion you're having is at what point does it stop being amazon's laptop and start being your laptop because i think we would all agree that If you got a perfectly functioning laptop and you opened it up and you started the process of installing software on it and midway into that process you accidentally overturned uh, a soft drink onto the keyboard of your laptop and smoke started rolling out you probably would agree if you're thinking about this uh, ethically that that's your laptop that you just broke it's not Amazon's laptop at that point. So at what point does it stop being Amazon's laptop and start being your laptop? That's what Incoterms tell us in a purchasing and selling arrangement because we want to make sure that both the buyer and seller understand this and that it's part of our contractual arrangement here so we could specify as the inco terms governing a particular transaction x works now x works is a standard inco term that says the seller makes the goods available but that's it the seller does not load them onto a truck the seller does not transport them the buyer is on the hook for all costs and the risk of delivery. So we might, in our personal experience, associate this with buying something from Best Buy. You go to the Best Buy store, you pick something out, you purchase it, and, and you know. in my scenario, I don't know whether they'll help you or not in reality, but we'll just assume that at that point Best Buy says, hey, it's up to you to get it loaded into your vehicle, we're not touching it because we don't want to be responsible, and we're certainly not going to transport it. Basically, we make the product available, and everything after that, you're on the hook for. And so those are a specified way that we could indicate that our transaction should work. This is called x We could alternately specify Incoterms of, of free carrier. And free carrier, the idea here is that the seller delivers the product uh, to a designated carrier at a named location. So we might, for example, say that we are going to use UPS as the delivery mechanism and so we will deliver the item to UPS in Johnson City Tennessee and as soon as we tender the product to UPS and UPS hands us a receipt we no longer own it as the seller the buyer is on the hook now going back to the issue of insurance this is why this is really important if UPS destroys it in mid-transit and we have specified the terms free carrier, who is on the hook for that damage? Is is the seller on the hook or is the buyer on the hook? The buyer's on the hook because the buyer took possession as soon as it was delivered to, to UPS in this scenario. Therefore, the buyer might want to pay for insurance so that if something bad happens, they don't lose out in the overall transaction. Free alongside ship, it's very interesting. There are several Incoterms that relate to uh, international shipments by way of, of ships moving from port to port. And free alongside ship says that the seller is going to take it to a designated seaport. So it might say, we will deliver this to such and such shipping line at Port Canaveral in Florida. And so what that would mean is if we're selling, you know, here in Johnson City and the buyer is in Italy, that's why we're having to ship it to them by way of an actual ship, we say we will take it to Port Canaveral in Florida and deliver it to such and such a shipping line. And once we do that and we have delivered it alongside the ship, then title passes to you. Now, what's really interesting about this is the reason why this is one of the inco terms is because in shipping by way of a ship, there are a lot of very interesting hazardous things that could happen. First of all, shipyards are places where things sometimes magically disappear, never to be seen again. Shipyards are also places where, and if you've ever seen it, it can be kind of impressive, where in a big shipyard where they have the massive ships, they also have really massive cranes. And a lot of times um, the massive crane will come over and will go to pick up a, a carton, a shipping container, and will lift it up and go to put it on the ship and bad things will happen, maybe due to the crane operator not paying attention, maybe due to the way things are packaged, but let's assume the crane operator picks up the carton, lifts it in the air, is going to move it onto the ship, a gust of wind comes along and blows it out of the crane and it smashes onto the deck, or it winds up in the water to float to the bottom, never to be seen again. Who's on the hook in that situation? the buyer is because the seller said I will get it next to the ship and then at that point it's all on you we have free on board which in my example of the ship means that it's going to get loaded onto the ship the ship is going to travel across the ocean and at some point in which we will specify title will pass now, I could say, all right, we're going from Port Canaveral to Italy. And I don't know exactly how a ship would travel from Johnson or from Port Canaveral to Italy, um, but it, it's going to make that trek across the ocean. And we might say, and I don't know that this would be very common, but we might say once the ship passes a certain parallel, at that point title changes hands. What's more common when we see FOB terms is for there to actually be a city or an address listed. So for example, if you bought something from a company in California and the, the Inco terms associated with with it were free on board, your address in Johnson City, then title passes when the item gets to that particular location. But you could be buying from a company in California and they ship it to you by way of truck and they specify free on board Kansas City because they know that the merchandise will change from one truck to another in Kansas City and so at that particular location once the item gets there that's where title will will change hands yes sir ah that is why we probably would not transfer it at an arbitrary point we probably would do either free-on-board, what's typically called free-on-board origin, which means that as soon as I load it up onto a transport vehicle, if I'm the seller, once I get it on transport vehicle, title passes at that point, or free-on-board destination, which means that the seller's on hook until it reaches the destination. My point is, oh, those are the two most common, but we could specify a, a different arrangement. And a lot of times, well, the only times I've ever seen this would be in a situation where, as a way of saving money, is, is almost always why this is done, the buyer might say, you know, I run trucks back and forth to Kansas City every day as a part of my business. So to save a little bit of money, why don't you ship it as far as Kansas City, and then I'll get it in one of my trucks at Kansas City. And so in that situation, we could specify Kansas City is where title's going to pass. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'd be really careful about passing title at some place where, you know, both parties want to look out for their own interests here. And so whenever we're changing hands on things in Kansas City, they're going to have me sign off on paperwork and all kinds of stuff like that. If any of you have ever moved and hired a moving company, it's the same kind of situation. You know, before they're going to actually turn over the product to you, you're going to have to sign all kinds of paperwork certifying that it's in good shape and so in a lot of these business transactions the same thing's going to happen there's going to be a lot of paperwork to sign off at the point at which this exchange is made Okay, so yeah, let's, let me kind of draw a picture here to illustrate this, okay, so here's point A, and here's point B, and here's the seller, and, and here's the buyer. The point of free on board is that at any point on this line title could pass, as long as we specify where it is. All right, so let's just assume arbitrarily it passes right here at this location. Well, you know, location L is where title passes. All right? Anything that happens on this side of the point, the buyer's on the hook for. Anything that happens over here, the seller's on the hook for. So, at this point, the seller is gonna wanna make sure that the buyer or the buyer's agent looks it over really good and is satisfied with it and signs paperwork saying, yeah, this is good. And once that happens, the buyer's on the hook. Now, if the buyer didn't check it out properly and then gets home and discovers that there was a hidden defect, um, they can try and do things like call up the seller and say, hey, you know, this is wrong, will you fix it for me? And particularly if the buyer and seller have an ongoing relationship, you know, if the buyer buys millions of dollars worth of stuff from the seller every year, legally, they might not be required to do anything, but practically speaking, they might say, yeah, we'll fix it for you. But in the eyes of the law, once it passes this point, the buyer's on the hook. Even if the seller did something bad, And I'll give you a really uh, great personal illustration of this. My wife works in another department here in the college, and I I don't know what they use this for, but you've all heard of, I guess, from this region of the country, a still. Well, there are legitimate uses for stills in some kind of scientific work. Well, my wife's college, they just recently bought a still from a company, and it was totally glass and the item was shipped to them. And when it arrived, it arrived in three different pieces, even though it should have been in one piece. And so they contacted the seller and said this arrived in defective condition. And the terms of the sale were such that title didn't pass until it got to the buyer and the buyer approved. So they called him up and said, we got a broken still, we do not accept this. And the seller said, We'll ship it back to us because we want to inspect it and we want to find out why it broke and understand what's going on here. And once we get this broken item back, we'll ship you another one. And and the people in my wife's office, they were fine about that. And so they actually took it to the UPS store to package it up because they needed insurance for the return trip. Well, the return trip, it winds up back at the seller's office, and they call my wife and said, you told us the still was broken, and you said it was broken in three pieces. And wife said, yes, that's true. And they said, we got the still back, and it's in at least 100 pieces. And they showed her photograph. It basically looked like someone threw the box on the ground and danced on it for 20 minutes. And at that point, the really interesting thing was The buyer in this case, my wife's department, they had insured the still for like $500. And so UPS had to cut a check for $500 for the insurance, and so even though it was a defective still being mailed back because of the insurance on it, really neither the buyer or the seller wound up being on the hook here, which is why insurance is very, very important in in transactions like this. So there's always going to be a specified, and the reason why we have incoterms is you'll never want to have a situation where this is vague. Because if it's vague, it could wind up going to a court case, and then a judge is going to have to decide, and he or she may not decide in your favor. Okay. Other questions about this or comments? UPS cut a check. UPS cut a check to East Tennessee State University because East Tennessee State University bought the insurance here. Mm -hmm. And the well. The ironic thing is, and and I I don't profess know all the details of it, but I think what happened is I think the seller shipped it this way and insured it for money, and it arrived defective, so they got money, and then they shipped back the defective one, and if you will, it arrived in even more defective condition. So I'm not sure that somebody in this transaction didn't wind up actually making more money, but I can tell you that UPS lost out in this situation okay so this is why insurance is really really important Um, cfr seller pays cost and freight to bring the goods to a named location but buyer bears the risk once the items are shipped now you might look at that and say okay let's take it apart the seller pays the cost and the freight to get it to the destination but the buyer bears the risk This has to do with insurance. Now, I haven't bought on eBay for a long, long time, but I'm pretty sure that eBay allows buyers the option of insuring or not insuring the shipment of their purchases. And so the scenario there is the seller has to put it in a box and the seller ships it to you, but if it gets damaged in shipment, they're not on the hook for that if our terms here are cost and freight, because all the seller is on the hook for is the cost of the freight shipment and not for buying any kind of insurance associated with that transaction. Uh, cost, insurance, and freight is exactly like the scenario above, but the seller is the one who's on the hook. And the seller has to provide insurance. Now, title doesn't pass um, until the item gets to the destination, but the seller is on the hook for actual insurance. Yes, sir. Um, just a comment on the mm-hmm. FOB. Um, you'll also see it in the F-O-B terms as shipping points, so, uh, origin. Yeah, I've seen it. FOB shipping point or FOB origin or FOB destination or a lot of times more specific, you know, FOB, Johnson City Depot, or FOB, an address or a location. Um, there are a lot of these ANCO terms beyond what I have shown you here, but, but they're standard ones. And, and this is, I, I thought, kind of interesting and fun, so we'll, we'll take a second and look at this. So um, if we, there's a, essay, there's a table, in the SAP database that stores all of the Incoterms and it's a uh, tinct table INCT basically which is the table of Incoterms and if we look at the contents of this table okay this shows once again internationalization uh, E this is English so here's CFR and CIF, and, and you notice there's a lot of other ones that we didn't talk about, like delivery at Frontier and, and so on, but a lot of the ones that we talked about are here. But then this is kind of fun when we scroll on down. Here's, here's French, and here's um, Russian Incoterms, which I can't read any of these. Uh, but the point is um, these Incoterms are things that are standard, business practices that have been well defined in law and so when we buy something because we're talking about the purchasing process one of the key things for us to have recorded is what are our terms of sale with this vendor and the reason why this is part of the vendor master is we will almost always deal the same way with a particular vendor And so we record that in the vendor master, and then we know, okay, when we buy from this vendor, we're gonna be on the hook for buying insurance because they ship it to us this particular way. So that's one of the things that goes on to the vendor master record. Yes, sir. We would have this listed in the vendor master. That's a great question. We would have this listed in the vendor master, which means that when we go to create a purchase order, it's going to automatically populate the purchase order with the standard inco term that we use. We can go up there though and change that field to something else, but this is a way of, of just that being automatically there because in a lot of instances, it will be an automated transaction that maybe a human being doesn't even see. But yeah, your point is valid. We always would have the ability to do a given transaction slightly differently by just going in and, and modifying the field on the purchase order. And every purchase order will have an Incoterms terms field. Okay. Good question. Other questions? All right, so that's purchasing info record. And so we have one more master data element to talk about here. And that is, or no, that's the vendor master. Excuse me. I was like, hold on a second. Something's wrong here. That's the vendor master. Purchasing info record is, is what's up next. I was getting ahead of myself there, excited about, about terms. It's just exciting stuff for a Tuesday afternoon. I'm sure all of you feel that way, too. Uh, purchasing info record. What, what's a purchasing info record? All right. And, and I hope you're picking up on a lot of the big picture ways that information is handled because ultimately that's the most important part of this and so I keep looking for someone keeps eating the whiteboard markers in this room so I apologize for having to use this really really wimpy one here. So we've talked about the vendor master just now and what the vendor master stores and all of the information that's in the vendor master primarily information about our relationship with that vendor and we talked about the material master which contains all of the information about the material you know let's say it's elbow pads or or uh, brake assemblies or whatever it is the kinds of things that you guys are working with this semester in your lab work that's in the given material But what's not in the material master is information about us having bought this product from this vendor. And what's not in the vendor master is any information about the products that they sell. So a purchasing information record kind of sits here in the middle, if you will, and it contains information about our purchasing of materials from a particular vendor. And so this is the purchasing info record, which I'll just abbreviate PIR, which illustrates, once again, let's say this is an elbow pad, and this is vendor number one. Well, here's vendor number two, who we also buy elbow pads from, and here's vendor number three, that we also buy elbow pads from. So this gives us a way not to put a whole bunch of junk in the material master about who we buy from and not put a bunch of stuff in the vendor master about all the products they sell, but gives us the ability to have these purchasing information records that are going to keep track of this kind of information. If I wanna know how many elbow pads have I bought from this vendor, I'm gonna find that information in the purchasing information record. And this purchasing information record, one of these exists for every product that I have purchased for every vendor. So a given material, if I've bought it from 17 different companies, I'm gonna have 17 different purchasing information records that contain details on my history involved in that particular transaction so it's the intersection of the vendor data and the material data so as i just said we have one of these purchasing information records for every combination of vendor and material purchased from that vendor and what we're going to see in that purchasing information record is really obvious things like the purchasing data the conditions, uh, as well as just any kind of notes that I might want to put there, any kind of special information, all of that's going to be possibly inserted into this purchasing information record. But for the most part what I'm going to see here is just my purchasing date and conditions. So it will tell me, okay, on such and such a date you bought 50 of these and here was the price you paid. And so that information is captured and reflected in these purchasing information records. So if we're thinking in terms of how this might come up on your midterm exam, and I'm just, there's a lot of questions on your midterm exam and I don't remember all of them, but you know, true or false, information about what we have purchased from a given vendor is found in the vendor master record. Well, false. All the vendor master record does is tell us about the vendor. All the material master does is tell us about the material. If we want to know about the buying of that from a given vendor, then I have to look someplace else at this purchasing information record to find out that that history. And so, for example, I think I can call this up here, uh, pretty quickly. I don't know that you actually uh, do anything with these in, in the lab, in the lab work that you're doing. But if I go into, I've got to find it here, logistics, material management, purchasing, master data, info record, right here. There's our, there's our purchasing information record and I can display this. And so I I have apparently defaulted to a particular vendor. I I don't know what vendor that is, so let's look it up real quick. So I can say, okay, you know, um, I'll pick um, fun in the sun. And so notice I could put in a material or whatever. I'm just searching for things right now. And so I've got to enter a record or material. So I've got to remember who I bought what from. So I think... And uh, I don't have this memorized. I think that from Olympic Protective Gear, I think we bought elbow pads from that company at some point in your lab work. So I'm gonna put in the vendor and I'm gonna put in, find elbow pads here. Elbow pads right here, okay and here's my purchasing information record there's not a lot of stuff here because we haven't gone in and and actually done a lot of business but notice here it will tell me things like um, how many times the vendor was late with deliveries um, how many point you know we've got all kinds of different things here that could be a part of this individual display including my ability just to come in and and put in freehand text here. You know I could write a note here that says they really gave us a hard time when we tried to make this purchase and I could save it and it would become a part of this information record. And so anytime I want to see details about what I have bought from a given vendor that's going to be captured in the purchasing information record. Questions? All right, we're kind of buzzing right along here which is good because I want to get master data finished for today. Conditions, conditions that term in ERP speak in particular is what we would equate to talking about prices. Now why do we use a, a word like conditions? Well we're used to, in our individual experience, going into a store, let's say Walmart, and walking up a particular aisle and seeing a box of Pop-Tarts there and seeing the price on the box being $1.89 or whatever have you. We pick it up, we put it in our shopping cart, we wheel to the front of the store, we let the clerk scan it, the cash register registers $1.89, and we pay it. That's the way we are used to transactions. In business, you learn that prices are very, very flexible depending upon a variety of scenarios. And in fact, some things that you purchase, and maybe you've had this experience or not, the price is negotiable. So I'm not suggesting going into Walmart and trying to negotiate the price of your box of Pop-Tarts with them. I did hear the story one time, um, and I have no idea if this is true or just somebody talking about a guy who went to Walmart and bought like $300 worth of groceries and after it was rung up, he said to the cashier, I'll give you $285 for it. You know, tried to negotiate the purchase at Walmart and I'm sure that made nobody happy but um, you know, usually we're used to the idea that for the most part, prices are fixed. Well, they're not fixed in most business arrangements. They're dependent upon the conditions of the overall transaction. So that's why instead of using the word price, we use conditions to refer to the different scenarios under which a price may be determined. And then ultimately, we decide this is the price that a given customer is going to pay for a particular item. So there are all these different rules that we use to determine prices. And the good thing is that a lot of this can be set up automatically. And so keep in mind, in this discussion, We're looking at this from the buyer's perspective. So the seller has already told us, for example, I will sell you this item for $1.50 a unit. And we have signed a contract with them saying that they will give us that price if we agree to buy so many units in a given time frame. And so whenever I buy from them, I know that contract is in effect. So the system will automatically apply those contracted prices whenever I reference buying that particular item from that particular vendor. That's a contract condition. We also have the ability to put pricing rules, to put conditions in the purchasing information record. And we call those purchasing information record conditions. And so this is applied to orders with a particular vendor for a particular item and the data is pulled out of the purchasing information record. So we talked about the role of the purchasing information record a moment ago. Maybe it tells us, hey, we've got an arrangement with this vendor. They'll sell it to us for $1.84 a unit. And so whenever I create a purchase order, the system's going to automatically and go out and look in the purchasing information record to see if there are any conditions to find and if so it's going to use those prices in the purchase order it creates we have a variety of extended conditions and those are applied if specified criteria are met you know maybe for example if we buy more than 1000 units at a time we can take a 5% discount so we would set up our system to be aware of those conditions and then when we create a purchase order the system will essentially look through those various conditions figure out which ones apply and put the appropriate amount on the purchase order based on what it is that we in fact will will be paying so one of the things that's unfortunate about your lab work is you don't really ever see much in the way of these conditions You see the screens in a couple of places in your most recent lab work where there was this grid at the bottom that had all these different gross prices and tax and everything else. And the lab told you to go in and put in the net price. And so you kind of just overrode all of the automated conditions. But the system can be set up to automatically put in the price based on your configuring these these condition rules. The one last thing here, and and this was talked about in your book and you answered a question about it, there's another term that uses the word conditions in it, and that is output conditions. Now the only only reason we're mentioning it here is for clarity's sake and because it has the word condition in it, output conditions have nothing to do with pricing at all. Output conditions specify how I get information between me and a partner company. Do I print out a hard copy and mail it to them? Do I fax it to them? Do I do EDI? Do I email it to them? Do I send it by way of carrier pigeons? You know, anything is possible, but whatever I specify once I understand how I communicate with that given partner, that becomes the output conditions. So that has nothing at all to do with pricing, but it does use the word conditions, so your book mentions it here, and so we will follow suit and mention it as well. And that is conditions. So we have now talked about the master data relevant to procurement, the material master, the vendor master, the purchasing information record, and conditions. Questions?